0: Yeah, well, let's get into the lift, Eamon. Was this the lift that was here in, in your time? I wish you wouldn't use these phrases, in your time. It sounds like the time of the ark. Yeah, this lift was here in my time, but I was also here in the time of the lift before this lift.
1: Say- Eamon Andrews, revisiting the old Henry Street studios of Radio Erin on the top floors of Dublin's General Post Office. This was where Eamon Andrews began his career in broadcasting more than 30 years ago.
0: My professional life I'll explain in a moment, but the other just comes back to me now. And Tyrone Guthrie wrote a book... Um, I think it was autobiographical, but I remember resenting the fact, accurate though it was, that in one of his chapters he described Radio Iron's lift and if you were lucky you got up with people. If you weren't you got up with cabbages going to the canteen and I thought it was so unfair to be telling everyone what was true. (laughs) Can you remember But the critical point about this lift, I know reception was there, but if you did a program and a lot of executives in Radio Iron didn't really listen to programmes, this is true at any radio station today. But I used to make a point of getting in the lift first, very early. And I'd say, if the lift was manually operated, I'd say to the lift man, that was a great programme last night, wasn't it? And he would say yes, even if he hadn't heard it. So then I knew that, you know, Rearbois, O'Farracón or Larry Morrow, he'd be bound to say to one of them, I believe there was a very good programme of Andrews last night. Solid left hands of Cockle are paying off now, and let's hope he doesn't cut the eye too badly. A left jab there by Farr, was a very strong one, and almost closed Cockle's own left eye, as Cockle moves away from him now in the closing seconds of this round seven. Cockle's setting himself again, trying to bring over that right hand, and Tommy sees it and moves away, and with the craft and experience that Tommy's got...
1: He's sitting Eamon right Andrews and began his radio career as a boxing commentator. In common with other hopefuls, he first went before a jury of executives in the Radio Air and Studios for his audition. C.E. Kelly was Deputy Director of Broadcasting.
2: Well, the only way to give him a trial without actually putting him on the air with an actual boxing match, which we might have thought a bit risky, with an untried man. Uh, was to ask him to show us what he could do, in other words, to imagine a boxing match, and he did go to, into the studio, and he gave us a broad, uh, commentary on a boxing match which wasn't there, and we were so impressed with the speed and the the, the uh, what you call the expertise of the boxing language and all the rest of it, and the the the, the, the impression he created of an actual boxing match in progress. So it was on the strength of that? It was on the strength of that, we, we gave him a contract.
1: And so he was given his opportunity. On the night of his first commentary from the National Stadium, Bernadette Plunkett was standing by to announce the broadcast.
3: Oh yes, I was the announcer on OB duty, as we call it, outside broadcast duty. That meant I had to be in the stadium there about an hour beforehand to check the lines and see that uh, we had communication with the studio it very often broke down in those days but this night it went extremely well Eamon came along and uh, was on good time calm and collected and when I announced him he took over from me and went through a faultless broadcast I have often had people who came in to do broadcasts in the studio and they would be dithering and, and nervous and wanting a drink of water and W- won't you tell me now, will you, will you sort of stay with me and hold my hand, you know, until the, the, the light goes on? But he was very competent.
0: I mean, The only reason that I uh, ended up doing that was that when I decided to learn boxing, which was, you know, late by normal standards, I was in secondary school by then, and uh, had had my nose pointed off a couple of times, I thought I'd learn about this. And I went down to St Andrews and paid my sixpence a week. And then, when I started looking around for broadcasting, I read somewhere, which I've never forgotten, which is very sound advice. The thing is to become an expert on something and say, I'm an expert on radishes or carrots or stamps, and you might then get your toe into broadcasting. So I said I'm an expert at nothing at this stage except boxing. So I wrote and said, I am an expert uh, at boxing, because I'm the juvenile 10-stone champion or whatever I was. And I've had elocution lessons, I remember adding. and uh, it worked <laughs> but it took <laughs> a long time to work oh a long time, yes mm. a long time
1: this famous story about you doing the commentary and also fighting on the same night is that apocryphal or did it actually happen? <laughs> I'm afraid it happened <clears throat> I'm afraid it happened, it
0: was a piece of lunacy that fortunately worked out happily at that time I was uh, I hadn't intended to really box again, I'd, I'd started uh... uh work, you know, and you can't, as a junior clerk, uh, you can't come to the counter with, uh, you know, a thick lip or a black eye. But I, I was secretary of, uh, or assistant secretary of, of the club by now, which was going through problems. And uh, the president, I think he was the president, Paddy Cullen, said, look, we m- we've only got so many entries, let's put you down for the, the middleweights. And I thought, well, you know, all right, if it's, it's for the prestige of the club, I w- it won't be that far, I won't last more than the first day. <laughs> And uh, then, of course, I knew I was going to be contracted to do the finals or hoped I was for Radio Aaron, which came about. But by then it was too late to withdraw. And then to my astonishment, and no doubt everyone's astonishment, I kept winning. And uh, this, the semi-final came at the part of the evening just before I was supposed to go on, on the air. But my friend, Paddy Nolan, and some other members of the club had put their watches back so that I wouldn't worry about the broadcast and gave me a false time. So I thought I had enough time. So I win this semi-final on points. And uh, when it's announced, Paddy says, quick. And he rushes me out of the ring and tells me the true time. So I've got to run up to that box on the balcony. And uh, there's a very bewildered engineer who's looking around, saying on the phone, "Now the commentator hasn't turned up. He's been watching me in the ring. But you know, you never look at the obvious place for somebody when you're looking for them. So we were on the air then. I hadn't much breath, needless to say. And while I was doing it, Paddy had come up, went to the dressing room, got my trousers, and he was putting them on (laughs) during the commentary. (laughs) And uh, it was a most unprofessional thing to do, obviously. Did it cross your mind that you might have been knocked out in the ring? It didn't cross my mind at all. It's a horrifying thought, horrifying to think of it now. It's never been asked until now. But now that you say it, I could have been flat on my back. And that was goodbye Charlie, wasn't it?
1: Eamon was in his early 20s. He was working as a poorly paid insurance clerk, a job that he disliked. It wasn't surprising that he should be trying hard to make another career for himself. But some of those who had known him in his school days believed that his real ambition was to be a writer or even an actor. Sing Street's schoolmate, Joe Reynolds.
4: Now, at this time, uh, essayists were, uh, you know, they were a little bit in vogue. We we used to read... um Chesterton and Belloc, and a fellow called Alpha of the Plough, Robert Lynde, and uh, you, d- you don't see essays like this anymore, and Eamon used uh, fancy himself on uh, a nice sort of uh, Chesterton type of um, essay. He wrote uh, for 111. He wrote poetry verse uh, and uh, essays 411 and I remember he used to sign his um, poetry as EA and he said to me at one time you know someday those initials will be as famous as AE's
1: His elocution teacher was Ina Burke. She realised the extraordinary quality of his voice as his headmaster at Sink Street Brother Carew recalls
5: he, we ca- he came back after leaving school, the first year after leaving school we were putting on a play and he came back and took the lead in Thompson and Tiernano No, you see. Not a very pretentious play, but at the same time, there was just, just good uh, material. And uh, at, after one rehearsal, she turned to me and said, now, that boy's voice will be worth him a fortune. So that was a prophetic statement, which I never forgot, of course, because it, how true it turned out to be.
1: In those days, it was the beginning of the war, it was difficult to find employment. And after school, Eamon Andrews became a junior clerk with the Hibernian Insurance Company. At least it was a job. One of his colleagues was John O'Callaghan. I was involved in it to some extent,
4: insofar as he um, consulted with me in certain aspects. I did my best to help him, because I knew his future was never going to be in insurance, that um, it was all too much hard work in the sense of uh, being tied to a desk and being tied to normal, routine hours. He was never built for that,
1: and indeed, his one ambition was to get out of it. During his insurance days, he wrote a play, The Moon is Black, which Blue White Productions, the Sing Street Drama Group, staged at the Peacock Theatre. Eamon played the leading role of a moonstruck poet, a role he took over when the leading actor had to drop out. Mihalo O'Haye, a drama producer at Radio Erden, recalls him at this time he he really had um,
5: a literary sense and uh, had a great feeling uh, for the theater he was very interested in becoming an actor and he he certainly spent some time in mooney's gaiety school which was the popular school at the time and i remember once uh, seeing him in, in 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 a play called the good hope now i think that was the only time when uh, i saw the same play twice on the same day because uh, Rhea Mooney had so many pupils that she had about uh, 25 in the first production of it, say, at three o'clock, and another 25 in the next production at uh, half past seven.
1: Many of his friends were convinced that he wanted to be either an actor or a writer. Indeed, he may still have been contemplating writing as a career when he interviewed novelist Kate O'Brien. This was an interview recorded on disc in 1947.
0: Well, could you make any comment, now, on the future prospects for Irish writers in Ireland?
2: How do you mean? uh,
0: Well, do you think there's any chance of Irish writers uh, writing for an Irish market and making a career out of it?
2: Well, I I think Irish writers have always been making careers. I mean, we've produced an extraordinary number of successful writers, and uh, as long as they write in English, I suppose, they have as good a chance of making a career as any other kind of writer, Welsh, Scottish, or British or English, don't you think?
0: Yes, I'm inclined to agree, but the difficulty there, of course, is that um, most of our Irish writers who have made careers have made them elsewhere than in Ireland.
2: Well, you know, it's a very small population. You couldn't expect to live on the number of books you'd sell in a tiny island like this, uh, could you? I mean, you have to write for the world and and take your chance. I mean, making a living out of it uh, could hardly be done, I think, in so uh, thinly
1: populated an island. The once hopeful writer turned instead to sport. His first broadcasts were made from the National Stadium and not from the studios in Henry Street.
0: Well, you see, I was a long time before I got onto this floor because I was, uh, as you know, started as a boxing commentator and uh, so it it was outside broadcasts. And This this wasn't easily got into, you know, I didn't even know for a long time where the rooms were or who was who. Old McDonough, I remember, you know, he used to have all the pieces of paper pinned to his jacket. And eventually I got in to see him and met Gus Inglesby and managed to write a few scripts and, you know, but it was a very gradual process. This was a, a mysterious cavern.
1: Let's walk along this corridor that you've walked along so many times. Do you remember coming to do a sports programme for Harry Carlisle when he was missing, when he was playing an international table tennis match many years ago? His first broadcast from the Hendy Street Studios was, in fact, a sports programme. The regular presenter was Harry Carlisle. I presented a Saturday
6: evening um, show, It was called Sports Report. Um, really a sort of 15-minute programme. Um, went out at uh, quarter to seven, describing in eyewitness form uh, the happenings of the day's uh, sporting events. Well, during the series, <coughs> I remember I had to be away one Saturday, and uh, yes, I was playing an international table tennis match in England. So they <coughs> they said they'd get someone to stand in for me. Now, that someone was Eamon Andrews, and I believe it was his first broadcast. Well, the amusing thing about it was that uh, you can probably understand that uh, at that time seven o'clock um the reports came in to me at the studio uh, right up to the very last minute and often uh, the handwriting uh, wasn't always in the best reporter's uh, shorthand but uh, you know i was doing it every week so uh, therefore i was uh, pretty used to it however Eamon's night arrived and uh, i believe he was in quite a state um, the reporter hadn't turned up as the red light went on, and he was on the air. But just then, uh, the reporter, uh, Bill Madden, and uh, I-, I know he's around, still reporting well, um, he rushed in to the studio and dropped a report, um, his uh, day's report on Eamon's desk. I know he gave a, at least I believe he gave a great sigh of relief.
1: There weren't many opportunities for boxing commentaries, and even though Eamon was working in an insurance office from 9 to 5, he wanted to broaden his radio experience. One of his less successful auditions was as a racing commentator.
0: Racing wasn't even one of my sports, but everybody, or most people, assumed that all Irishmen know racing. Certainly abroad they do. And at that particular time, um, they were doing uh, auditions for a racing commentator at Baldoyle Racecourse, and... Um, Uh, My friend Gus Inglesby here Said the auditions are on are you interested in doing them doing one? I was at the hibernian insurance company at the time Their next Saturday week or whatever it was and He knew I wanted to get on in broadcasting and it was another chance And I said yes because I said yes to everything in those days, which is always another professional mistake But I said yes, and then I found out what race I was supposed to be doing and I Read the names of the horses and I'd read about other commentators who memorized names and numbers and colors So I did all that and I prepared my race. What well, I hadn't realized—I hadn't gone to race meetings at all. Let me explain. I hadn't realized that colors weren't little flags that jockeys held up, and you could see green, white, and orange. You know, that there were stripes and hoops and spots and bows and all that sort of stuff. So it was—it uh, <laughs> was—it was a w- windy sort of day, and the, the people who were doing the test—I I mean, I can't remember who the the potential commentators were, except one, the fellow who won it, some obscure character called Hare. O'Hare. <laughs> uh, he won in a canter, obviously. But I got up, and, uh, and I'd borrowed somebody's binoculars. And it's an open window, and there are punters in front of me. And this is all being relayed back to some solemn board here in the GPO to listen to these commentators. Charlie Kelly, I think, was director at the time. And uh, I start off, and I say, so sos in front. And it's fair enough, I can identify them, roughly. But the wind now starts to whip up the, the numbers on the side, so I lose that, uh, the colors mean nothing to me. And now they've gone around the back straight, and I don't know one head bobbing up and down from another, but uh, so I invent, hoping in God, that when they come around the, the bend towards the finish, I'll be able to sort them out in the correct order. What I don't uh, bank on is that it, what, we hadn't lip mics in those days, or certainly hadn't got for that test. It was an open, I think, ribbon mic, is I think they were called. And I'm saying, so-and-so's second, so-and-so's third, or whatever. And a very irate punter who can't stand it anymore turns around and says, for so-and-so's sake, so-and-so's last, so-and-so's fallen, and -and so-and-so's nowhere. Uh, Finish of broadcast. Nobody ever mentioned it to me since. You know, it's been a little veil drawn over it.
1: Well, racing was out, but he decided to try his skill at commentating on other sports, soccer, for example, as Brian Dernan remembers. Heyman
7: came with a number of others to Mount Park where we were having a dry run of possible commentators. And there was no doubt, following that dry run, that Eamon was going to be asked to do the commentaries. And he started off from that. His knowledge of soccer football, I think Eamon would be the first to admit at that particular time, was pretty rudimentary. Not that he didn't know sport inside out, but he wasn't uh, a soccer enthusiast. Well, he came up to Derry Mount Park, did a couple of good commentaries, then came a really important one when we were playing England. And it so happened that the Wednesday prior to that, England were playing the North of Ireland in Belfast, and I suggested to him that we might go up and see the game.
0: Soccer really uh, catapulted me finally into broadcasting, yes, because I was doing, I was engaged to do a Football League of Ireland against a Football League of England, I think, or Britain, or whatever it was. And uh, I didn't know these British players, but they were playing in Belfast on the Wednesday. And uh, I was asked my chief clerk, could I have, uh, oh no, the Saturday they were playing, a Wednesday here, could I have this half day Saturday off? And he said no. And I was with Brian Dernan, we used to do the, we used to do the whole match, and Brian would do the summary in the middle and the end and so on. So I thought, I'm doomed if this big match comes, and I just the only one I know is Stanley Matthews, you know So I think I'll have to uh, go anyway. So I decided with to go with Brian to see it, get my sister to phone up and say, "I've got a cold or some other equally unconvincing lie. And we see the match come back, and they can't very well fire me for missing a half day, so it's forgotten, and I go up to Daily Mount on the Wednesday and do the commentary on the first half. And I turn to Brian, and I said, well, it's uh, quite a good first half. What do you think, Brian? And he says, well, I don't think they're playing as well as when we saw them on Saturday, Eamon, do you? And the general manager, Joe Gallo was listening in, and he sent for me the next day, he says, I think you're not cut out for insurance, really. <laughs> That was he point. happened to be a soccer fan, and he was yeah. very helpful and very kind and said, look, you, why don't you pack it up?
1: There was no turning back. Although Eamon had been contemplating a full-time career as a broadcaster, the decision, in effect, had been made for him by his boss in the insurance company. Still, he must have had some worries about his ability to earn a living as Ireland's first full-time freelance broadcaster. mihalo hey. He asked me...
5: Um what did I think, and uh, remember I'm a comparative junior in RTE at the time, did I think that he could earn the same as he had? He was earning in the insurance company something like five pounds a week. And I knew even then um, uh, from his, his his aptitude and his very serious approach to the business of broadcasting and his own obvious um, merits as a personality that he that he would have no trouble in making five pounds a week.
1: His income from boxing and soccer commentaries would not have been enough. Obviously, he had to find other broadcasting work. Then came an unexpected offer.
5: At that time, Noel Hartnett, a well-known barrister, had been employed by the Irish Tourist Board, that was the predecessor of Bordfalter, to do a series of question times from well-known uh, resorts like Salt Hill and different places around the country during the summer months. Joe had done it earlier, but uh, Hartnett used to do this particular job for the Irish Tourist Board. Hartnett was a barrister, and I th- had, I'm certain, yes, that he represented the next of kin at an inquest on Sean McCaughey, who died in hunger strike in Portlaoise, And subsequently, at a public meeting of protest against the government's treatment of political prisoners, he spoke uh, pr- pretty forcibly about the government's treatment of prisoners, and I think he referred to them as belts and governors or something, which didn't appeal to the ministers at the time, and the ministers uh, did then, um, uh, as they often did subsequently, were, were quite irate that a broadcaster should um, take it on himself to, to, to criticise them in this way. And although Art Radio Ayrton, as it was, was not implying Hartnett, as I pointed out, it was implied by the tourist board, they insisted it to be removed.
7: I was on the lunchtime programme that day. I got a phone call and I told it. Certain other personalities, like Jolie Nane and Jimmy Henry were not available. Could I think of anybody? And I just said, I think we might be able to get Eamon Andrews, if that's agreeable to you, director. Should try and get it with you. Haman came down, and he was a riot in every sense of the word.
1: And so he completed the remaining series of Question Time. He was now an accepted broadcaster and at last had gained a foothold in Henry Street. Well, my office was the waiting room,
0: <laughs> just a bit further up.
1: Let's go to your office.
0: <laughs> it's a very long corridor, this, it isn't is. it? It you... is. Well, I assume it's... Oh, yes, because the, uh, the original lift is, is somewhere... Uh, or was somewhere out to the left, or I don't know if it still is here. So, oh, yes, it is. That's, it's probably through that door here. Yeah. And so here's my, uh, my office that was then. And Morris, he was the, uh, the messenger or whatever the phrase was, doorman here. And one of the attractions of this office was that there was a telephone there that I could use hmm. and a little ledge that I could write on. I heard one marvelous uh, sitting here as I used to, especially on Saturday afternoons, there'd be nobody here except maybe the odd recording and I'd be waiting for, uh, or trying to get get together microphone parade. And I remember distinctly sitting on that corner and they didn't notice me and a group of actresses came down. And I don't know what, they'd been on a children's program or something and Faye Sargent and uh, Rita O'Dee were in the company. And this is a piece of fabulous quick thinking. I think it's quick thinking, and I know Rita won't mind me telling the story. Maybe I'm sure she's long ago forgotten it. As they're coming in to get their coats, I hear Rita say, Oh, what a script! And Faye says, I wrote
1: it. She said, I know, darling, but the typing. (laughs) (laughs) Microphone Parade was a Saturday night interview programme, probably the first of its kind on Irish radio. Presenting the programme with Heyman was Terry O'Sullivan.
3: It would be an ordinary part of the business of an editor of a newspaper to uh, arrange interviews, and, of course, interviews were an integral part of any radio programme. But I, I was sent for and brought over to uh, Radio Erden, GPO, and uh, introduced by me, Holloway, to this young and personable man called Eamon Andrews. I'd heard from him already. So Eamon then said, uh, we want you two people to uh, interview people. We'll call the programme Microphone Parade, and for the present, Eamon will be in charge. That was that, all the formalities were over. Nobody mentioned money. But Eamon and I went across the road to the nearest pub and we celebrated with one bottle of Guinness. <laughs> exactly one, because actually I was terribly excited. I was going to get four pounds a week and Eamon was going to get eight
1: pounds a week. So we were, you know, we were improving. Like Reform parade, Eamon, which was a program you did with Terry O'Sullivan. That's right. And yes. you must have brought many celebrities along this corridor.
0: Yes, those it's years. incredible the number who did come because we couldn't go to them, we didn't have the equipment and they would come, you know, for no loot and just uh, for the interview. Did they have to come on the night of the programme or could you record them? It used to be the night of the programme uh, but then very quickly we were able to record them, you know, not uh, on, on disc, you know. What sort of people? Can you remember many of the names? Um, oh, you know, it was, what, five people a week. They came from all... I mean, some of them were fantastic. I remember Charlie Coons... Uh, you know, who was packing them out on the Olympia and getting I don't know how many hundreds or thousands a week. He came in, did an interview, and played. You know, it, it, it hardly happens today. He played, I mean, probably would have all sorts of other reasons for not playing, but he did. And, and Sir John Bauer, John Barbarelli as he was then, came in, and he, he had a phrase I've never forgotten, because he always claimed he was a cockney, uh, as he was born within sound of bow bells. But... Uh, he came up with a phrase that he loved, he said, to come... Because his, his area where he was born was blitzed during the war. And I remember him saying on the uh, recording that he loved to come to Dublin. I think he was conducting that famous choir. He said, uh, he says, to walk among the Georgian architecture and be reborn again. Great line.
5: That was a compliment indeed. And it's been a great pleasure meeting you here, Mr. Barbarone. And thank you for coming into to us tonight. a great pleasure always to come back to this
8: lovely little city
5: which reminds me
8: so much of the lovely... George and Bloomsbury, alas no more, which I was born. So I have to come and be
0: reborn in Mary Square and those lovely streets around when I pay my annual visit. I remember uh, picking up... Uh, and funny, I'm not musical yet. I'm thinking of musicians. Uh, Jose... Deterby. Uh, the Spanish pianist, isn't it? Uh, he was appearing in the Royal. <clears throat> and uh, this was Saturday. I had to get him. And he agreed he would do the interview, but I had to come and collect him which meant getting a taxi over at the quay and having it outside the door, of the stage door of the Royal. And his, he was so cool, the place was packed. And I get round to the wings, wait for him, he, he's taking his applause, and I'm saying, is all right, Mr. Turbier? Sure, sure, sure. And then he goes out, bows, smiles, plays another number, comes in. We get into the cab, and there's a crowd at the stage door. They beat the cab and they wreck it. And I get him here,
1: get the broadcast, but uh, my fee did not cover why I had to pay that taxi driver. <laughs> Perhaps one of the most daunting subjects to be interviewed at this time was the painter Jack B. Yeats. It was a diff- difficult interview, yes, mainly through my own ignorance. Um,
0: nowadays I wouldn't go and research a cat without having <laughs> prepared and learnt about the cat, what breed a cat it was, and I wouldn't have gone to meet a man as big and as important as, as Jack Yeats without more briefing than I actually had. But having done that, at least I knew the area he was in, but I felt I knew his brother, the poet, better uh, than I knew him. But my memory, it's a bit vague on this, was that he was a shy man, I would think, didn't particularly want to talk to this youth, you know, who obviously didn't know about his art form to any degree, and insisted, I remember, on talking about uh, model trains. Now, this sticks in my mind that I went away like slightly hysterical that I'd, he wanted to talk about model trains, about which I knew less than I did about art. <laughs> so but you, a talked, charming about, you man. talked about model trains? That's my recollection. I don't know whether we actually recorded a bit about uh, model trains, but I know I had to go through a, a jungle of train conversation before I got this interview. I think it was his birthday or something, and I'm sure he was as puzzled by me as I was by him. Well, I'm sure the least we can do, Mr. Yeats, is persuade you to talk about your paintings.
8: I'm not so sure that you can. I'm not at all fond of talking about my own or other painters' work. I never lecture about painting. I don't even interrupt at lectures. But I enjoy hearing other people talk.
0: Well, perhaps then you'll tell us how you started on your career of painting.
8: Hmm. I'm afraid we're in difficulties there again, because I'm against the giving of personal details about the painters. And anyhow, my start was earlier than I remember. I only have it on hearsay, so that I couldn't answer it even if I wanted to. I know I was drawing at an earlier date than I can recall. All right, then,
0: we'll pass that one. But what would you say to me now if I tell you that there are several of your paintings that I just don't understand? Mm,
8: The answer to that question could only be completely answered in a lecture. I've said that I don't lecture. But I would say you could not possibly understand all of any painting of mine, any more than you could understand all of the feelings of any living being. Uh, there's no book of words, no direction about you or anyone else can understand all about painting. If there were such a book, it would ring the knell of painting. I dislike the word art as to painting. There is only one art, and that is the art of living. Painting is an occupation within that art. And that
1: Eamon collected celebrities from Microphone Parade, and his range was wide. He talked to great painters and musicians, but there were also more light-hearted interviews, like this interview with the famous clown Johnny Quinn.
0: Well, hello,
1: Johnny. How are you, Tom?
0: Oh,
5: Mr. Andrews, I'm <laughs> glad to see you looking well. And well, you're looking.
1: Good.
0: Well, Johnny Quinn—that's a name to play with in the circus in Ireland. How long have you been in the circus, tell me?
5: Well, Mr. Andrews, I should think I've been over sixty odd years in the circuses. Yes. I suppose
0: you've been with many, many circuses in that time, have you?
5: Oh yes, I've been with all the circuses. Uh, I should say the ever in Ireland for three quarters of a century. I've been with Paulie Clarks, Lloyds, Hannafords. Davis's, Jeanettes, O'Connor Circus, which stood in, uh, Rotunda Gardens, and uh, Dublin Circus too. Hengler's, also John Duffy's, Fosses, and now with Fossets, uh, with, uh, I am now with...
0: Yes, Sando, isn't
5: it? I am now with Sando Circus, yes. Mm, well, you certainly seem to have taken them all in. Yes. How did you come to join the circus at all? Well, it's a very strange...
1: While the Microphone Parade series continued, Eamon Andrews was branching into another area of entertainment, Maxwell Sweeney was with the Rank Organisation at the time.
6: Then uh, there was a suggestion that we should do Cine Variety in Limerick. And of course one of the most popular shows on the stage at the time was Double or Nothing, which uh, Eddie Byrne was comparing so successfully in Dublin. And uh, Louis Ellerman, probably number one showman at the time, was asking for suggestions. And I suggested that Eamon, who proved such an excellent interviewer, on microphone parade, might be just the man to do this, since he also had experience as a boxing commentator. And so, uh, Eamon was packed off to Limerick at uh, what I might say was a very, very modest salary by today's today's standards. And from there, he was to come up at weekends, put microphone parade together, and belt off back down again.
1: By now, he had certainly broken through his £5 a week economic barrier... He moved from Limerick to the Theatre Royal in Dublin with his popular double or nothing quiz. Though some of his friends, like Joe Reynolds, were perhaps not very impressed.
4: And as I see it now, looking back, I don't think it matters. What line he eventually took? He was going to be a success because it wasn't so much that he was—he wasn't all that great of a broadcaster when he started first. I, I thought personally, when he used to peer up in the royal and hold her one big ear and say he's ready for the quiz, I said, you know, be sorry for him and squirming in his seat, but he went over with a bang. You know, no matter what he did, his sort of his own personality in dealing with people behind the scenes in creating an image. Maybe it's because sometimes he seems so helpless and so nice. I think that's why he went over so well in England. They thought he was... Uh, he wasn't too clever by half. He was um, uh, sort of a nice, shy boy. And this was, I think, his main,
3: the main cause of his success. And at the time, March 1947, we did have a, a Theatre Royal, and we did have stars, and Eamon went into show business in terms of sound um shortly afterwards in terms of his own uh, personal appearances on stage and he grew up and grew up and bigger and bigger and better and better more and more confident until he eventually grew out of um, this program of interviews in fact the whole thing had turned around people now wanted to interview him um we never had a row we never had a row we had a slight coolness one evening. He was held up somewhere, I think, in Limerick, and I had to pull out the program myself, which I did, wasn't very much trouble, and uh, ended up by saying good goodnight. Uh, this was Terry O'Sullivan signing off, or whatever I was doing. About a week later, I met him, who said, you didn't mention my name. <laughs> well,
1: that's the professional. Let's go and see what's left of the famous studios that you work from. All right. Now, we're going up to the, the, uh, the fourth floor. Even the
0: this carpet is gone from here. <laughs> I remember one interview coming up here now, it just occurs to me, oh, where I had Michael McLeamore and uh, Hilton Edwards. And unfortunately, the morning they were coming, they'd had a row so they wouldn't talk to each other. So I had to go out into this corridor and talk to Michael separately and then into another and talk to Hilton and then bring them together at the microphone.
1: (laughs) In April 1947, the radio critic of the Irish Times wrote of Eamon Andrews, this young man has one of the warmest and most colourful voices now coming over the air. The critic was referring to the microphone parade series. Paradoxically, at this time, Eamon Andrews was also writing as a radio critic he had a weekly column in the Irish Independent, which he began in November 1946 and continued until the summer of 1950. Although he's inclined to dismiss that column today, looking back over the newspaper files, one finds that it was well written and indeed carefully written. At times it was very tongue-in-cheek, like this comment from a column of January 1947. This morning, a vicious mood. I have discovered a bottomless hate for radio, A hate for radio artists, a virile dislike for the gall and wormwood that wander about the ether and sidle into my receiver. The brief hours between the completion of this review are the sweetest moments of existence. I listen to the radio with dreamy indifference. I switch off a programme without being harrowed by the fear that something original may occur before it finishes. I scan the lists and see the programmes that claw past each other to the stars. A smile lights the worn countenance, looking at the dark, silent set. I switch it on, and when it gets warm, switch it off. This goes on all night, switching on and off, and chuckling. Eamon Andrews, the radio critic. Yet another outlet for the freelance broadcaster in the 1940s was sponsored radio.
0: The first uh, one I ever did was in this just studio just behind the wall, where you did play your own records, and... Uh... I think I may have told you this story before it it was uh, sponsored by uh s pure food products Paddy Kavanaugh, father of the rugby international and uh I we, the signature tune was Bing Crosby singing you are my sunshine and the the opening line was supposed to be well up comes the music here are the songs and singers requested by you and presented to you by the makers of KS pure food products but McHair said on the very first day, presented to you by the makers of KS Poor
1: Food Products. <laughs> it was a young advertising man, Dermot Caffrey, who brought Eamon Andrews into the area of sponsored radio. The KS program was the first of many sponsored shows on which they worked together. Shortly after that, I suppose
9: it'd be about a year after we did the KS one, we found another sponsor in the form of Imco of Marion, and we suggested Eamon to Imco of Merion and uh, Eamon took over the IMCO show from uh, from its inception with uh, the man who ran IMCO at the time, Louis Spiro, uh, who was uh, a performer himself. You know, He had been a professional performer years gone by, and he uh, participated in the programme and it became um, spotless and stainless. I really can't remember yet which,
1: whether Eamon is spotless or stainless, Together they set up a company known originally as the Broadcasting Company. The company was to provide a service in the field of sponsored and packaged radio. Among the shows they produced for Radio Erden was the long-running Living with Lynch with Joe Lynch. Eamon presented his sponsored programmes live, as they say. This was before the time when technology had made broadcasting a lot easier for the broadcaster. They were done very much live because they were in the days
9: and you didn't do all the sophistication. You had two turntables in radio air, and um, you had no pre listener or anything like that. And what um, I did a, a, a lot of the disking for from for a certain period for some of them. But in the early stages when we went first into this programs with Eamon, Eamon scripted the show. He wrote the script. In many cases, he bought the records. He um, Physically, not only did he do the comparing, but he did the actual disc jockeying as well. You know, he would play, drop the needle, and in those days, I say, it wasn't a a bar that you pulled down that dropped the needle into the groove. It was you literally held the 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 little tiny piece of the edge of the uh, head, and you you dropped it in the groove and we used to buy yellow crayon pencils, There was a, a light kind of a, a soft uh, yellow crayon that you could buy, and if you pointed it fairly well, you could mark the track that you wanted, to. Leave it. if you had a long intro into a number, or you wanted to come in maybe the f- first verse, or that sort of thing, that you could, you'd, you'd, you'd listen to it and you'd mark it with the crayon, and then when the time was ready, and Eamon would be like, I'm at your mic now, giving out his spiel, and at the same time he would be, and we will have whatever it is, and he'd drop it into the grove. <laughs> and then when that one was playing, you had to set up the other one and get it set up, and the way we used to pre-listen to it was that we devised an idea that we had um, of an envelope. If you took an envelope and you opened the envelope, it would be a long-shaped envelope rather than this kind of a one, and if you lent the edge of the... Envelope against the needle that was playing, you could hear what was coming out. So that was your method of pre-listing, you know, whether you had the right groove or not, you know, was it the right thing, you know? You listened to it a couple of, right, okay, right, well, now you had that, you had a little bit of chalk mark on it, you put the needle to one side, and then you waited for this one to end, and then you went down to the mic, and you set your next speed.
1: Although he had applied in the late 40s for staff jobs, including the job of outside broadcasts officer, Eamon continued to work as one of the few full-time freelance broadcasters for Radio Aaron.
0: Yes, I don't think there were very many. Uh, the, the thing was, there were some very talented uh, writers and producers in, in Radio Aaron, and they tended to get most of the work, naturally. And this producers do this even today, which is a bit sad because they... Want to rely on the people they know are reliable to produce the goods at the last minute and so on. And I certainly felt um, for a long time very much on the outside. I think perhaps I always felt on the outside because I never quite broke <coughs> that particular barrier. You'd get work eventually because they were all genuine, you know, good people, but they didn't have time. And it was a, a slow and, and wearing process. And I think it's always worth remembering. Uh, where you have a monopoly situation, the terrible responsibility it is. I've always said this, even when we were starting RTE, that since you are a monopoly, there's some fella sitting in the farmhouse or in the room who's as good as you, and if he's hitting the wall of just one place to go to, you've got to try and tell him why. Or Nobody has time, but they should try, because it's very despair-making when you know you've nowhere to go, which is probably why I eventually went to the BBC.
1: I was thinking also of the people in authority, what their attitude was towards sponsored radio.
0: I would think, deep down, they resented it, you know. I think that somebody persuaded them as a source of revenue they should have it, but they always did. I mean, and even from the day when I got involved in the authority, the, the move was on to get rid of it, you know. They just didn't like it.
1: Was it something, though, that you were quite enthusiastic about?
0: Yes, well, I thought it was... You see, I thought one of its advantages was that it was a, it, it helped to at least do something to the Monopoly situation, that you felt that if the whole of RT really fired you and didn't ban you, you'd have hope of going to some sauce maker or apple jack shooter or somebody and saying, I can do your 15 minutes and get a few bob into that way. It watered down the
1: Monopoly situation. The quiz he conducted on the stage of the Theatre Royal in Dublin had led to a tour of cities in Britain with the Joe Loss Orchestra. Then the BBC signed him to replace the Canadian Stuart Macpherson as quizmaster of the comedy radio show Ignorance is Bliss. Eamon had pestered the BBC just as he had pestered Radio Aaron in his youth. It was a persistence and determination that eventually paid off. Ignorance is Bliss led to his television debut, to the panel game What's My Line and then to This Is Your Life. Although he was now working mainly in London, he still continued to commute to Dublin. He and Dermot Cafferkey joined forces with Fred O'Donovan, who was also running a recording studio. I had a
10: company here, my own company, Fred O'Donovan Productions, in which I used to do sponsored radio, and Eamon had his own company, which was broadcasting and theatrical productions. And it was run then by a chap called Eddie, the late Eddie McGurk, and uh, Frank Whelan was the engineer. We were both eating out of the same stew pot, and stealing programs from each other so finally Frank the engineer Frank Whelan uh, came to me and said would I consider having a chat with Eamon so Eamon and myself got together we had a chat and we've been together ever since and that was way back in 1956 with giant forces uh, I asked for the company to be renamed Eamon Andrews Studios uh, which meant that it wasn't using my name, I wasn't using broadcasting and theatrical productions. And we started then in 1956 uh, in the little room at the top of Henry Street. Uh, the secretary was Eamonn's sister, Kathleen, and uh, the whole staff amounted to about four people in one room. And that's how we started.
1: If, if we can go back to the earlier days, though, how many programs would he, been, would he have been doing on an average in a week?
10: Well, I'd say Eamon was probably doing about uh, 12 or 14. In, in the early days, when Dermot Cafferky, Ronnie Walsh, and, uh, uh, and Eamonn uh, were running the studios, Dermot Doolan was involved. This, this was before my time. Uh, they were doing about 12 or 14 programs a week. That's a lot of programs. It is, but when we amalgamated it, it went up to 26. We, we, we sort of uh, captured the main market then. And indeed, we then went in more for station programmes, packaging station programmes. We did uh, things like Meet the Showman, Odd Noises, which was a sort of uh, not unlike The Goon Show, except it was before The Goons. And uh, different shows like that, Maureen Potter Show. We, we started a package. Living with Lynch, of course, was the uh, famous one, but that was going before I was involved. And uh, we d- did quite a lot of shows together. In fact, we did a lot of, uh, a considerable amount of really first-class radio. <laughs>
0: showman we meet is a man whose name is known to millions, whose face and voice have commanded a fortune by almost any standards, who before he took to radio, television, and the cinema, was schoolmaster and policeman, student of law and literature, who had and probably has a priority option on the word irascible, who I know hides a kind heart under a rough word, and who is was continually pointed out to me as my sworn enemy. Well, now, how do you like that description of yourself, Gilbert Harding? Well, I think you begin
7: and end, of course, in the wrong way, because I'm no showman, and I'm certainly not your small enemy. For a long time, it was very really useful, I suppose, to the newspapers to pretend that we didn't get on well together. But as you and I know, we've never had a crossword, and you're one of the
0: very few friends I have of whom I can say that. <laughs> now, can you remember when you first gained a reputation for... Uh, Bad
1: of- in the late 50s when the idea of an Irish television service was first raised Eamon's company applied for permission to set up a television service that permission wasn't given but when in 1959 the government set up a committee to advise on the introduction of the service Eamon Andrews was appointed chairman and in the following year he became chairman of the first broadcasting authority. Michael Hilliard was minister for posts and telegraphs at the time <laughs>
11: was at uh, the interview at which uh, Mr Lamas had with Eamon Andrews, and it was obvious to me that uh, Mr Lamas thought very highly of Eamon Andrews. He regarded him as a person of excellent character and a person with wide experience in the matter of broadcasting and uh, in in, uh, entertainment on radio and television, and uh, he uh, felt that... He, he was appointing a man who was a real good Irishman.
1: Did it sur- you were at this meeting. Did it surprise Eamon Andrews that he was offered this job? Because at this time he was working out of Ireland.
11: Well, I had offered him the post first, myself, on instructions from Mr Lamas through the, the, uh, acting on the consensus of opinion within the government. And there and then I told Eamon Andrews that Mr Lamas and his government would be pleased if he consented to act on an advisory committee that uh, the government had decided to set up to advise me on the implementation of the television service in this country and uh, i was surprised agreeably surprised at mr andrews's reaction he immediately said that he would indeed be honoured at being invited by the Irish government to give his talents and his experience and his knowledge to uh, the people of Ireland in the establishment
0: of this service. I was very surprised. Um, I mean, I had, for some years before, I tried to lobby uh, the government or posts and telegraphs, which I think is an unlobbyable uh, <laughs> body, or was in those days anyway, uh, to start television. And, I, and nobody, I don't know that just We never really got any serious answers back. So I suppose that maybe to that extent, when they were going through the files of the cranks who were talking about television, I was one of them. And uh, Michael Hilliard uh, sent for me, and I was surprised. Oh, he asked me to to, to come and see him, and said, uh, would I consider this uh, chairmanship? And uh, I was flattered and interested, but I wondered, was it possible? And I said I would think about it. uh, I'm sure this is not relevant, but I I did say to him, you know, as long as you're not asking me what my politics are, I will take it as a broadcasting job. He said, I don't want to know what your politics are, which was refreshing to me with all the talk that goes on in our town about uh, this kind of thing. Then I went to see uh, the teacher who was Sean Lamass, and uh, he was, as we all know, a very impressive character. And uh, I said, yes, I would do it. And he said, right, well, We'll pay you, I think it was 500 a year or 1,000, I don't know which. And I said, no, I'm just doing it for, for Ireland sort of thing. I don't want any money. He said, no, no, I want to pay, he said, because I want to be able to fire you.
1: <laughs> <laughs> the, the problems that you found when you became chairman of the authority, were they unexpected to you? Um,
0: some of the pressures were unexpected. Uh, they came from most extraordinary sources, and I wasn't... Uh, I wasn't a committee man. I wasn't used to understanding where people came from and, indeed, eventually political pressures, not necessarily coming from the top or the bottom or in between, but they were there. And, you know, language pressures and religious pressures all boiled up at this uh, table, and we had a very excellent authority. But, like, at that stage, I was the only one who knew anything about broadcasting, and my main concern was to try and get a service on that would be
1: looked at, first of all, before we decided what else it wanted to do. There was a saying by Sean Lemass when he was Shock Eamon, uh, that broadcasting was too important a medium to be left in the hands of the broadcaster.
0: Yes, and I think, uh, allowing for his sardonic sense of humour, I think he meant most of that. Uh, I had many a, a battle with Sean uh, Lemass over this. He believed it should be an extension of government, an arm of government. I believed very passionately the, the opposite, that a broadcasting authority should be removed as far as possible from a government. Obviously you'd have to have some qualifications in a single uh, channel country of our size where you couldn't go berserk and so there'd have to be some ultimate uh, deterrent but I always thought that A the government, B politicians were far too sensitive, paid far too much attention to television A it got them a lot of publicity anyway and tended to interfere too much if they could um, I don't know where the division should be, but it should be much further away than it was then. I think it has moved further away, which is all to the good.
1: You you had belief, I think, in a second channel, but not so much a channel of of, uh, state radio as of commercial radio and television. Well I didn't mind whether it was commercial or
0: not. I just have always believed from the days of radio that there should be a second outlet, not just for what you see on the screen, but for art, for talent, for people, for technicians, that they don't feel hemmed in by a single monolith. And for that reason, uh, mainly, there are other reasons, but for that reason I think we should have had a second independent, uh, and should have sometime, and will have, uh, independent
1: channel. Every week, Eamon commuted to and from London to chair the meetings of the RTE Authority. But how did the fact that he was chairman of the Authority affect his interest in the venture known as Eamon Andrews Studios, an interest that was criticised at the time? Fred O'Donovan. Well, I I'm,
10: have to be personal on this because I had the job of running and Andrew Studios, and I'd say it set us back about five years because, uh, by being chairman of the authority, number one, he had to give a terrible lot of time to the authority. Number two, we had to relinquish agencies which I'd obtained in America for film, and uh, we relinquished them all we, without exception the moment Eamon was made chairman we handed these agencies back to the people and said you'll have to deal direct with the station now it's it's normal practice for people like us to be agents for film but I'd say we we probably uh it, it did us a lot of harm in the early days prestige wise it may have done us good but it certainly didn't do us good financially
1: and as far as Eamon himself is concerned
10: well I'd say it. It. it I mean Eamon owns uh, 28% of the company, so that he suffered probably more than any of us because he had to relinquish a lot of work that he could have taken in england but he couldn't it was too much to be a member of the authority a chairman and take on extra work now i don't think he regrets it and indeed i certainly don't regret it because you know if something you haven't got you haven't got it and that's no good crying about it, It, uh, but it did do us. I'm delighted to be able to place it on record. It did do us a lot of harm.
1: His appointment as chairman of the RTE Authority was for a period of five years. At the end of five years, he agreed to serve for a further year. But in May 1966, there came a government announcement that Eamon Andrews didn't wish to seek reappointment at the end of that year.
0: I disagreed basically on two points with the Authority, which I don't think I'd specify now, and on that basis, I said we couldn't agree, and uh, I left. Subsequently, some of the members did say to me, "Well, they hadn't quite followed what I was meaning," and uh, but by then it was too late. Anyway, it was a good thing that would change. I think.
1: In a statement he made at the time, he touched directly on two aspects of the television service which had been questioned publicly: the use of the Irish language and the employment of non-nationals. He said. I have felt for some time past that in our projected Irish language programming we were in danger of moving too far ahead of our audience's capacity to maintain communication with us. As the people of Ireland themselves implement the revival of the language, so too do I believe the service should keep pace and even be slightly ahead, but only slightly. I fear also that we may have been going too far too fast in seeking self-sufficiency. I felt that we in the television service would have less danger of slowing down our development if we continued for some time in the future to be courageous in finding some skilled people to help us from other countries. Even though I have complete confidence that, given a little time, the service will produce its own talented executives in all areas. At the end of our visit to the old Radio Aaron Studios in Henry Street, we asked Eamon Andrews the rather obvious question – after more than 20 years in television, does he still hanker after radio, the medium in which he spent so many of his early years? All the time. I, I absolutely love radio. I mean, I've, I've done three radio programs in the
0: last couple of weeks. Um, but the, my problem now is uh, that I am doing a television program a day, uh, while well, I'm in London, that is, and, uh, you know, I, I come back here and I'm here each rather long weekend, but there isn't room to do or to give the attention a good radio program deserves. But I love radio, yes.